So today we're in Mark chapter 7, and I'd invite your attention there as we consider a very significant passage of Scripture uh, in Jesus' day and in ours as we talk about the enemy on the inside. The enemy on the inside, Mark chapter 7 and verse 20, and he that's Jesus said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Now, today's message is built around a parable that Jesus told in response to criticism that the Pharisees brought. They came to see him uh, from Jerusalem. He's up in Galilee now. And they immediately noticed that his disciples were eating, but they were not following the uh, rabbinical practices of purification. They had an elaborate system of purification that they had to use when they washed their hands before they ate their food. And of course, there were many other things that were associated with that. And so Jesus responded to that criticism with a parable. And the actual parable is found in verse 14 and 15 and following. And when he had called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. So even though this parable was short, and even though it is relatively simple, as we will see, the application of it was very confusing to these disciples. And so they asked for clarification. They needed to understand exactly what it was that Jesus was talking to them because they knew about the dietary requirements of the law of Moses. They'd been raised up with them. They'd lived with them all their life. Now today we talk about all of those dietary requirements of the Old Testament law under uh, the heading of what is kosher. Uh, kosher is something that has been approved or, or that has been prepared according to the rabbinical customs. Now for us, if you go in the grocery store, about the only kosher food that you're likely to see is kosher dill pickles and kosher salt. Uh, those two are almost always going to be there. Some uh, uh, stores do have a, a whole section of food that is uh, dedicated to the Jewish uh, uh, people who still today and many others still today continue uh, to follow that Old Testament system of dietary rules and practices. The most famous example of it coming uh, into play in Scripture uh, probably is in the Old Testament book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel and his companions, friends, were taken to Babylon in captivity where they would serve the king as a part of the uh, group of eunuchs who served there in the palace. He went to the king in verse 8 and request, or went to the uh, prince of the eunuchs and requested something. He said Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. There's that expression. Defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. 
Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, Daniel knew that the king of Babylon would eat a lot of things that they weren't supposed to eat. They'd prepare food, but it wouldn't be prepared the way that uh, their customs required and that their law required. And so he requested that he would not be caused to defile himself by taking of this food that wasn't correct, that God had forbidden of them. And I want to remind you again, this system was put in place by God. And Daniel was not to be laughed at. It's not a trivial thing that Daniel said, I don't want to defile myself by violating the law of God. This was God's law. Daniel took it seriously. All of them took it very seriously. Some of the rules of that dietary, uh, uh, those dietary laws seem very strange and rather arbitrary to us. Uh, for example, the one that stated that they were not to eat any kind of fish that didn't have scales. The only kind of fish they could eat were those with scales. So all kinds of shellfish uh, were uh, not kosher. <laughs> Couldn't do that. Uh, catfish, no, not catfish. And we wonder, well, why in the world would God do those kind of things? And the, and the answer to that is, we don't know. We don't know. Because the Bible doesn't explain it to us. God just said, don't do this. It may have very well been, in some cases, like in the case of shellfish or shrimp, for example, uh, something as simple as the fact that they didn't have any ice, no refrigeration, uh, no means of keeping it cool. So if they pulled that stuff out of the ocean, they had to eat it right away or it would go bad. You and I know that shellfish goes bad in a hurry, and when it goes bad, it is really, really bad. And so it could be something as simple as that. God also forbid them to eat of anything that died, what we would say of unknown or natural causes. If you had a cow that died, you couldn't eat it. We understand that. If you have a cow drop dead in your pasture this week, don't call Brother Rich and ask me if I want to come eat it. Uh, I don't want it. Why? Because even in our day, we don't eat things that we don't know what they died of. Uh, there might be something in it that uh, might affect us. We don't eat things that are, are that way. So even though the why is not so clearly given to us, some of the things we identify with, we don't have to go into all the things that defiled people in the Old Testament. There were a lot of things. It wasn't just what they ate. Uh, if they touched a, a, a Gentile person, then they were defiled and had to go through a time of purification. If they... Uh, if they touched a dead body, uh, they were defiled and had to go through a time of purification. If they touched a snake or any other reptile, and I'm sorry I'd have to mention that because I know some of you kind of get the heebie-jeebies every time I say snake, uh, but I, I can't help it. I won't say it again, I promise. Let's just say reptiles. Uh, all kinds of reptiles they could not touch. If they did, they became ceremonially unclean. They were defiled and had to go through a ritual of purification. Some of the other things were more serious. Some of them actually carried a death penalty. We don't, we don't have time to go into all of the things that would defile them. But Jesus in this text was just talking about those dietary things, the things that they would eat that could potentially defile them. And Jesus then gives them a, a profoundly different kind of teaching when he said that it's not what goes into a man that defiles a man. Uh, that wasn't what Daniel thought, was it? 
Are you following me today? I know we've got a, we've got a, little, crowd, we've got a little ground to cover here. It wasn't what Daniel thought. So was Daniel right and Jesus or was Jesus right? The fact is they're both right. Jesus, you see, is giving some clarification about what all this was. God did give them those rules. Yes, there were things that defiled, but now Jesus is giving them something different. It wasn't that he was changing it all, but he was giving them a, a new way of understanding it all. Something that they'd missed. Even though Jesus taught them this here, it would be years before the apostles would get it all down in their playbook. Acts chapter 10 talks about Cornelius when Simon Peter would go and visit with him. And, and, and Simon Peter went up uh, about lunchtime and he was taking a nap and he got very hungry and he went into a trance. And God showed him this vision of a sheet coming down, uh, Acts chapter 10, verse 11, descending on him. And in it were all uh, manner of wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, verse 13, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now Simon Peter would say, Lord, I've never eaten any of these things. Never. Not one time in his whole life. I've never eaten this before. But before that day was over, he would enter into the house of a Gentile. Something else that was forbidden. Before that day was over, he would preach the gospel to a Gentile. Hadn't been forbidden. God just wanted to get that message out there. It was time. Before that day was over, he would sit down and eat at a Gentile's table and eat his food. That was very much forbidden. In fact, Simon Peter got in trouble for it. Acts chapter 11, the apostles and brethren who were in Judah heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision consented with him saying, You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. Oh! <gasps> See, they were still struggling. You read the book of First and Second Corinthians, read Galatians, read Romans, and you'll find that over and over again this issue came up. The whole book of Hebrews, over and over again, this issue came up. What about the dietary restrictions? Now, most of us today are well past this, unless you have come into, uh, uh, under the influence of someone involved in Messianic Judaism or some of the various Christian religions who still believe that we are required to keep all of the law of Moses, uh, then you're probably not uh, struggling with these dietary requirements of the Old Testament law. You might not have ever thought of them. You might have even wondered why they were given it doesn't mean that it's not still out there. There's a book out right now called The Jesus Diet. Some of you might have that book. You might even be on it. Uh, the premise of the book was that Jesus uh, followed the Old Testament dietary laws and this is how Jesus ate and therefore they prepared this whole diet plan based on, uh, well, how Jesus ate or at least how they think Jesus ate. Uh, if you want a more secular version, uh, uh, we went to see a, a gastroenterologist, if memory serves me correctly, uh, who recommended uh, that we get on, Nancy and I get on the, the Mediterranean diet, that's what they called it. 
And I said, well, what is the Mediterranean diet? And he said, well, you know, all the people that lived around the Mediterranean Sea, they ate all these things. And, and it didn't. And it, there's, a lot, there's a lot of it in the Bible, he assured us. And I'll be honest with you, just because that doctor recommended it, I looked at it. There's a whole lot of stuff in there that I don't like. And there's a whole lot of stuff I like that wasn't in the book. So much, so much for the Mediterranean diet. We're not on it. Don't plan to get on it. I want to show you a passage real quickly. And, and believe you me, folks, there's a point to all this. Please, please stay with me. I understand. I've had to, I have to cover some ground with this message today. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14 tells us pivotal truth. Having wiped out the handwritings of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. This is talking about the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, what he did for us when he died for us. He wiped out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. That's the Old Testament law. He wiped it out. And he took it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And having disarmed the principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So, we could read that, therefore, because of this, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. A couple of important things. Number one, he tells us that Jesus Christ took the Old Testament law out of the way, that it was nailed to the cross. Period. Jesus put a period on the jurisdiction of the Old Testament law. The law of Moses was fulfilled by Jesus Christ. So we're not under that anymore. The practical application is don't let anybody judge you. Don't let anybody intimidate you about what you eat or don't eat because those Old Testament dietary restrictions are no longer in place. You don't have to keep the Old Testament festivals or new moons or Sabbaths anymore. That's all gone. But then he also gives us another piece of information. These things were shadow. <clears throat> now, not too many years ago, in the not too far distant past, there was a marvelous thing that you could get called a Polaroid camera. Now, it probably had another name, but we called it a Polaroid. Some of you old folks like me remember it. You punched a button and it spit out a picture at the bottom. And then you sat there and looked silly while you waved it around and it developed. Y'all remember that? Uh, guess what? They didn't have them back in Bible times. Didn't have them. Uh, they didn't have a phone that was also did double, double duty as a camera so you could take a picture and then see how you look. Hmm, okay, I'm going to do that again. Huh? You know, they, they didn't have those kind of things. So when the Bible talks about a shadow, though, what it is talking about is an ever-present picture that... Is, is painted. Here's the sun. Here's the reality. And you could look down then and see your shadow. Not, not real clear, but it was a shadow. It was a picture, a portrayal of the reality. All this stuff in the Old Testament law, all of those dietary requirements, they were a shadow. They were a picture of a deeper spiritual reality. They were a picture of something related to the work of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus then, as only He could, gives us an inspired and authoritative commentary on all of those Old Testament rules and rituals about food and what the Jews could eat and what they couldn't eat, how it had to be prepared, 
what they could do and couldn't, God now gives to them through Jesus Christ a glorious explanation of why He did that. This explanation is going to reach across the centuries because it addresses not just them in their culture, but us in our culture too. So as we almost always do with parables, we'll start out by looking at the elements of the parable itself. And again, it's very short, uh, so this is not hard. uh, But I will have to talk about things that you don't normally talk about in church. I'll do it as graciously as I can. Why am I talking about this? Because Jesus did. Jesus did. When he had called all the multitude to himself, verse 14, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand there's nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay? This is simple commentary on the Old Testament dietary laws. And this is what he said. What we eat goes through our digestive system and comes out of us as excrement. We know that. The Jews knew that. We know that excrement is to be avoided. When you come into contact with it, we know you need to wash your hands. You need to wash anything that may have been contaminated with it. This is simple, hygienic practices for us. We know also what it's like to eat something that isn't right. We know about that too. Cooking doesn't get get rid of all contaminants. You can cook poison mushrooms, for example, but they'll still be poisonous and still probably kill you even though you cooked them. Cooking doesn't get rid of all contaminants. Many things can have a profound effect on our digestive system. We know that too. They can even be life-threatening. We know that. They knew that. But for the most part, whatever we eat has a predictable destination. Here's the point. Even the most Levitically clean food if they ate exactly what God Almighty Himself told them they could eat, they didn't eat what God told them not to eat. So they are eating only clean, God-approved food. And it it is prepared then the way that God told them to prepare it. How's that for a cookbook? We're going to eat what God said to eat. We're going to cook it. The way that God says to cook it. And just to be on the safe side, we're going to wash our hands and go through all of these rituals. And we're not going to wipe our hand on something. We're going to wave it around in the air. We're going to go through all these elaborate rituals to make sure that when I'm eating my food then, there's nothing in there that can defile me. I'm eating clean food. I'm eating it prepared the way God said to prepare it. I'm eating it with hands as clean as I can make them. And yet after it goes through us, it still comes out something vile 
and defiled. And it will defile anyone who comes in contact with it. Do you see what Jesus said? Eat clean food. Eat it with clean hands. Eat kosher food. Doesn't matter. When it comes out of you, it's still going to be defiled. Now, what is the application of that? If you're wondering, you're in good company. Remember, the apostles of Jesus Christ were wondering too. Jesus, what all does this mean? And I can only imagine what some of you visitors might be thinking about this message today. Remember, I told you I'm preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Why do I preach it? Because Jesus did. And we're about to see it has an important application for us as well. When the disciples then came and asked him what it was, he said to them, verse 18, Are you so without understanding also? Do you not know that anything from the outside that enters a man cannot defile him because it does not enter his heart but into his stomach and goes out into the sewer, thus purifying all foods? You see, Jesus is telling the disciples, and he knows. Remember, this is the Son of God, God in human flesh, Jesus Christ. He knows why God did this. He said, God did not give this to you to turn you into a bunch of germaphobes. Or perhaps we'd say a bunch of defilement phobes. He didn't give you this system so that you would invent all of this ritual to try to fix it all. He gave you a very clear and very obvious and constantly present reminder that there is something in humanity that's on the inside of us. That no matter how clean something is, no matter how pure something is, it comes through us and it comes out evil and vile and defiled. You see, it's not the stomach that God was worried about. It's the heart. It's not the dietary practices that were the end all of everything God wanted them to see. He wanted to see them to see and us to see that there is something bad on the inside of us. And that no matter how hard we try, even by following all the rules that God gives us, we still turn things into something evil and defiled. And by the way, I remind you this morning, uh, this whole problem of sin started with somebody eating something that they shouldn't have eaten. You remember that? Now, for the sake of those who might not know, when Jesus talks about the heart in this passage, He's not talking about the blood-pumping muscle. He is talking about the center of the will, the abode of the spirit, the abode of the personality, uh, the essence of who we are. And so we look at then how Jesus applies it, and He's got a long list of things. He says, From within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornication, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all this evil, all these evil things come within and defile a man. This was incredible truth for them. But it is also incredible truth for us 
today. It is the will of man, the heart of man, that is evil and that can take good, even good things, even godly things. It can take the most clean food prepared in the most ritualistic fashion, eaten, eaten with the most clean hands, and still turn it into something filthy. Jesus wanted us to know then, as the sermon title suggested to us today, the enemy is within. There's something wrong with us. It's a problem of the heart. I want to tell you this morning that within the heart of humanity, there is a depository of pure evil. There is unspeakable filthiness in the heart of humanity that can take the most pure environment and corrupt it. Every single sin that God speaks of in this passage, and there's 13 of them in case you're counting, 13 of them, every single one of them, comes directly from the heart of fallen humanity, every single one. Don't be scared. I'm not going to go over all 13 of them. But I will take a, a, a little spattering of examples that we can see how that after all of these many centuries, what Jesus taught this day so long ago still has a profound meaning for us. Jesus begins with the sexual sins, evil thoughts, adultery, and fornications. The connection between what we think about and what we do has been well established. Jesus taught that in the Sermon on the Mount, you'll remember. It's not just about committing adultery with a woman, but about looking on her with lust. So it's not just what we do, it is also what we think about doing that is also sinful, evil thoughts then. Uh, there has never been a man or a woman who has ever committed adultery that it didn't begin in their mind. They thought about it. They considered it. And so while Jesus talked about that, James also did. James chapter 1, every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. He didn't stop with adultery, but he started, went on to all kinds of sexual sin. I've said it to you before. I want to say it again this morning. God invented sex. It was not bad. It was not ugly. There was great significance in what God said in the garden, naked and unashamed. They were naked and unashamed. He designed sexuality to occur within the framework then of marriage between a husband and a wife. And yes, that's a man and a woman. It is... In fact, an act of worship It is a picture of our union with Christ. But humanity has taken what is beautiful, what was designed by God, what was pure and right. God said, be fruitful and multiply. But humanity took something pure and beautiful and turned it into something unspeakably perverted. And filthy and vile. Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. So generations of humanity have conceived and carry out, carried out every sexual perversion that can be imagined. There might have been a time when you lived 
in, in America and even around the world, when we were somewhat isolated, all we saw was what happened in our own little small towns or our own little part of the town. And if it didn't go on there, you probably didn't even know about it. Oh, but those days are long gone. We're so connected these days. We hear about it all. We see it all. What Jesus tells us in this passage goes directly against much of what is being taught in our world today. That all of this adultery and fornication, all of this sexual immorality of all kinds and varieties, it's not environmental. It isn't how a person is raised. It's not about learned behavior. It isn't your parents' fault. And parents, it's not your fault. If your kids have gone into something they shouldn't have. Where does it come from? Jesus says it comes from the heart of people. They conceive it. They think of it. And they carry it out. Out of the heart. And by the way, you remember, he calls it evil. He moved from there to murders. Remember I told you I'd just pick out a few of them to show you how applicable they are to our culture. Not murders, singular. Murders. Mass murders. We wonder how could I, dare I say it, a, a normal person. They might have been a little odd, but we, we never had any clue. We lived right by them. We went to work with them every day. How does this person become a mass murderer? Jesus says it's in the heart. It comes out of the heart. They think about it. They conceive it. They plan it. They commit it. Murders. That's in there too. finish up or go on then quickly to thefts and covetousness again he shows us that the problem the actions are tied to the thoughts covetousness is desiring to have what somebody else has or wanting what someone else has and, and that produces then theft so the, the thought process again uh, plays out in the action how often in our world today do we hear theft on an unbelievable scale written off to environmental difficulties are we not told, and regularly so, all oh, that the reason that people riot and loot and burn and destroy property is because they, they've been oppressed by the, the privileged elite. It, 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 it's the fault of the government. It's the fault of our social structure. Jesus said, mm -mm. Theft and covetousness comes out of a person's own heart. The source of it is their own heart. He mentions then pride and foolishness. <laughs> These two are together for a reason. For one quickly moves to the other. And to put it bluntly today, a person with pride will do a lot of stupid things without realizing that the source of their stupid behavior is their own rotten pride. The Bible's been saying that for centuries, pride goes before destruction. 
covers a lot of territory, but again, it shows us that the enemy is on the inside. That inside of us, in the human heart, there is the capability of all kinds of evil. Thank God there's an alternative. And the alternative is spelled out for us very plainly in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 24. They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Two things that are true for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. Number one, we see our flesh through the lens of the old rugged cross of Jesus Christ. We see our flesh through His beaten body, through His lacerated back, through His shed blood. We see what sin does because we see what it did to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul would put it this way, because of Jesus Christ, he said, I am crucified to the world and the world is crucified to me. Between me and the world stands an old rugged cross. And in order for me to do what the flesh wants to do, I've got to walk all over the cross of Jesus Christ to do it. But there's more. Because now as a believer, the mighty power of the Spirit of God lives in you and He lives in me. And so we're told to walk in that an interesting choice of words. Walk step by step, day by day, moment by moment. Make sure that every step I take is being led by the mighty Spirit of God. And when these things play out in our life, of course, the Christians, that means we'll never sin again, right? Nope. I wish I could say that, but I can't. But I'll tell you how it does play out. It means, number one, that uh, I'm not what I used to be. I'm not what I used to be. It means, number two, I'm not what I'm going to be. Because one day, the Bible tells me, I'm going to be changed in a moment and twinkling of an eye and we're going to leave behind this vile body and receive a glorified body, this robe of flesh. I'll drop and rise and seize the everlasting prize. I'm not what I used to be, but I'm not what I'm going to be. But thank God, I'm not what I could be either. And neither are you. Out of the the heart of man proceeds all kinds of evil. There's a a limitless supply of evil. And Jesus gave them this constant reminder. Because they would take good God-approved food and cook it. Good God-approved ways and eat it with hands that they'd made as pure as they could. And yet when it came through them and it comes through us. It's still something vile and defiled. And evil. There used to be a lot of ideas about uh, humanity as being basically good. Uh, you might have heard a country music song last year's pretty popular. Said, "I believe all people are good, and most mamas ought to qualify for sainthood." And I don't remember anymore. That's the only lines I remember. used to be a a pretty well uh, doctrinally established point by a lot of people. Well, people are good. At our core, we're good. You don't hear that as much anymore. But you do hear it. It's just in different ways. 
Part of the argument that is made that people are basically good these days is just built on the idea that everything that God says is wrong in this passage is basically okay. Or it's good. Or it's right. There's nothing wrong with it. And so they can believe that people are basically good because they've decided there's no such thing as sin. But while humanity has changed their mind on a whole lot of things, God hasn't. He called these things evil. They still are. The other argument is that, uh, uh, well, it's somebody else's fault. It's our corrupt system. It's our corrupt government. Uh, yeah, I've got this evil, but, oh, you know, we can't hold it against them. It's not their fault. But that's not what this passage says either. All this evil comes from within the human heart. That being so, you know what we need? <laughs> A new heart. Got good news for you. It's in Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26. God says, I'll give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Thank you, God. Aren't you glad for the gospel of Jesus Christ? How do you get in on it? I'm glad you asked. Romans chapter 10. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. See, the reason why that God gave them all of those dietary requirements, all of those rules, Jesus tells them here. He says, use your head, guys. You know this. Whatever you eat is going to go right out of you and be gone. But when it comes out, it's going to be defiled. No matter what you do, no matter how many rituals you perform, no matter how you cook it, you can wash your feet until you can't see anything. You can wash the skin off your hands and you're still... No matter what you do, this vile, evil, defiled stuff is going to come out of you. If there's an evil within us, and it is, and if we can't fix it, and we can't, then the hope that we need has to come from without us. And it is from above. It is from the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins and gives us the promise, you believe on me and I'll give you a new heart. Would you claim that promise today? You've been struggling. You've been trying to do good, trying to do right. I'm trying to clean up my life and change my life. Listen to me, folk. Listen to me sitting at home right now. If you could change your life, if you could fix yourself, then Jesus Christ died for nothing. He died because we can't fix ourselves. Won't you call on the one who will? Let's stand together.